This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. What you hold, may you always hold. What you do, may you always do and never abandon. But with swift pace, light step, unswerving feet, so that even your, st- your steps stir up no dust, may you go forward securely, joyfully, and swiftly on the path of prudent happiness. This is St. Clair of Assisi from her early documents. I had the opportunity recently to be in, in two places that, um, that really moved me. One was the uh, Basilica of St. Francis and San Damiano, that is the, the um, uh, main house, the heart of the um, Order of St. Clair. And the other was the great synagogue of Florence. And... Um, you know, when, when Tenka, my partner, and I walked into the, the basilica first, it, it was full of people. You know, first, as you're, as you're approaching on the train, and there's, the, there's the hill, the mountaintop, and it's, it's um, at the top. And it's the picture of your um, ideal medieval town. Uh, the, the church itself is built with this very light pink uh, blocks of, of stone. And so even though it's huge, I mean, it's massive, the feeling is very, very light, very airy, very spacious. And it actually has two parts to it. There's a lower church and an upper church. And the lower church is more uh, cave-like. It's a little bit darker and, and long. <clears throat> the, the nave is very long. And the upstairs is, is lighter, and it has uh, the walls are lined with frescoes of St. Francis's life. And as I said, it was full. It was full of people. And when we came in, first you're just struck by um, where you are, that this is uh, where St. Francis, he didn't live there. He lived nearby, but that, that, that was the place where he taught. And there was a group, a small group of Italians doing a service, doing mass, and one of the monks was uh, singing. And we had been there for about a minute or two. And Tenka and I, and we, we had kind of walked separately. And I turned to her at a certain point and I realized that she was crying and so was I. Uh, my heart felt, um, I was trying to, to, to remember the feeling. It felt almost as if I, my heart had gone on tiptoe and was reaching towards something, and it had gotten larger and couldn't quite hold what was happening, just the beauty of the singing and the, the um, it wasn't just the history of the place, but it's, it's one of those places, like here, when you walk in and you realize that something is happening that is larger than you, something that 
most likely you don't understand, but you feel it. You feel it in every cell of your body. And the synagogue was, was um, very unusual. I, I really wanted to go. I had seen pictures, and it just the building looked beautiful. And it was uh, out of the way in... in um, it was just out of the way. You had to walk quite a bit to, to get to it in this neighborhood that was, you know, a little run down, and uh, nobody was there. I mean, there was us and a couple of other people. And so the place was mostly empty. And same thing, though. We walked in, and every single square inch of the inside is painted with uh, Moorish-style mosaics. And it is uh, staggering, how beautiful it is. And I think this time, because it was empty, I could feel it in a different way. And, and I, I didn't want to leave. I just, um, oh, and although I know next to nothing, really, about Judaism, I, I felt um, <laughs> that I wanted to be there, that I, I wished I could have been there for a service and just participated in um, this this tradition that seems, you know, and, and I went to, um, we went to the, the Basilica first, and yet it all seems like it was a one thread. Like there, there's, somebody said, there's a language here that needs to be spoken, and we're finding different ways to speak it. And it just made me think how, in, in many ways, we're deeply religious beings, even people who say they're not religious how there's a sense of awe and wonder, reverence, love, that we know is necessary to our humanity, that they're the lifeblood, the, the heartwood, in fact, of our humanity. And whether it does manifest itself as religious or whether you know, it's love for nature, for the wild, for open space, for sky, for art, you know, a piece of music that also transports you. But although it's human-created, it seems to transcend the boundaries that we're used to navigating between. And because I think we, we feel safe when we're contained in that way. But every once in a while whether we break through or somebody else does and gives us a glimpse, and we realize, oh, I had been so limited. And writers, writers do this for me often, and and so many of them are women. And some of them maybe are religious, some of them not, at least not overtly. Um, Last time I was quoting from Annie Dillard, but Toni Morrison, Rebecca Solnit, women who have, um, who walk through a door at, 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 at least one moment in time and then do everything that they can to tell the rest of us what they have seen. And that they inspire me you know, to, to press against my own limits, <clears throat> those that I perceive and those that I don't. And then there's the women mystics, Buddhist, Jewish, Sufi, Christian. And 
I'm going to quote from a couple of the Christian mystics just because they're the ones I've been visiting with lately. But also because their example is the example of a clear path, an unwavering aspiration and practice that is outside tradition, that is universal. So St. Clair says, what you hold, may you always hold. And what you do, may you always do and never abandon. And this describes her life actually very well. Uh, she was born to one of the wealthiest families of Assisi. So there was, very much like the Buddha, there was no need for her to look for anything else, except she was going to be married at 18, and she didn't want that. She didn't want to be contained in that way. And she had heard St. Francis speak and decided that she was going to follow him, that this was the way of life she wanted to live. And he had just started, really, his order. He had no place. There was no church. There was no tradition, really. I mean, he was still fighting to have his order be recognized. So she was really stepping into completely the unknown. What was unfamiliar was certainly not safe, even. Certainly not accepted. And how um, unusual it was for someone so young, just the, the strength of her devotion to living a spiritual life, despite everything, really. That she was willing to, to abandon every trace of security that she had to follow these uh, you know, scruffy, wandering um, preachers. And on Palm Sunday, which they said was kind of really a, a coming out party for the, for the young women of, of the time, uh, they would all line up, and the bishop, they would go up, be blessed by the bishop, and he would give them a palm frond. And <clears throat> she didn't get up. So it was in the midst of the, of the ceremony, and she didn't get up. And noticing this, the bishop got down from his, whatever, pulpit platform and offered her the palm frond. And... You know, some people say it might just have been a symbol, but also a kind of um, foreshadowing of the power that she would have. So three years later, when she was 21, she was the abbess of her monastery, and convents all over Europe looked to her for for guidance. And she didn't want that. She didn't want the title, didn't want to, to be head of anything, but she had to. It was the only way that they would recognize the order. And the women had to be cloistered. They wouldn't allow them to be wandering like the men. And so she had to accept, and she did. And it said that that night, after the, the incident with the palm frond, that that night she left her home, not through the front door, but through a side door that was heavily barricaded. And so she snuck out and went to what was called the Porziuncula, where St. Francis was with his ragged group of monks. And he received her. He didn't hesitate, apparently. Received her immediately, gave her a tunic, and shaved her head in the tonsor, um, which was then a recognition that she was a Franciscan. And until they ha- he had to get the, 
church, the small church of San Damiano, ready for them. And so until he could do that, um, he put her in a Benedictine monastery so she would be safe. And her family went chasing after her. And as the story goes, she grabbed onto the altar and wouldn't let go. And so her two big brothers are like trying to pull her away from the altar. And as they did that, her veil fell off and they saw her shaved head and they got it. They realized she's not giving up. We've, she's already gone. And, she, and they relented. And then her sister followed as well. And same thing, they went to go get her. And the, the story goes that uh, she, she kind of fell on a, on a swoon or she fell to the ground and that she was so heavy they couldn't pick her up. And she became the abbess of a monastery in Prague. Prague. And so for the rest of her life, until she died on, at uh, 59, she spent her life working, doing manual labor, praying, uh, healing. Apparently she had enormous healing power, fighting with the bishops and the popes of her time because they insisted they had to have property. They wanted them to be secure and contained, would be my guess. And so they wanted her to accept land and property and to be supported by the church. And she refused. She said, our life is um, following the example of the life of Christ, Christ and of St. Francis, and that's absolute poverty. We own nothing except the tunic that we're wearing. And we're completely dependent uh, for our, our well-being, our livelihood. And she stuck to that until the very end. And the bishops and the pope relented. They accepted it. It said that she fought off uh, soldiers that came to attack her convent first and then the city of Assisi, Assisi a second time and that all she did was stood in front of them and prayed and that they turned away and didn't harm them. And she was the first Western woman to write a monastic rule that was accepted. The day before she died, it was accepted because they were living under a Benedictine rule, which she didn't want. And just before she died, uh, her nuns heard her talking to herself. And she said, Go calmly in peace, for you will have a good escort, because he who has created you has always guarded you as a mother does her child who loves her. And then and they asked her, you know, who are you talking to? And she said, my soul. And so one of them said, this is important. Write it down. Write it down. <laughs> and she overheard it. And she said, you're not going to be able to remember. You, you will only remember basically what God uh, sees fit for you to remember. But then she stressed it on her deathbed just as she was dying. She said, always be lovers of your souls and those of your sisters. Always love yourselves and your sisters. Can we do that? Can we truly love ourselves and each other and not fight each other for men's attention sometimes, for their love, but deeply love ourselves and one another? Because I think that if we could, this would be a very, very different world. 
you know, and men need to be loved too, of course. They need to be loved, not uh, fawned over. Respected, but not admired at our own expense. Can we deeply love our souls and those of our sisters and brothers? And if we want more women to come here, for example, if, they want, if we want them to practice Zen, they need to feel that this is their place, just as I think all of us today feel. That discipline is necessary, but not hardness. That Zen is not all sharp corners. That is not just about passing more and more koans, but about being a full person, a full human being. And that you don't actually have to sacrifice one for the other because they go hand in hand. That you can be firm and focused and tender and kind. Mothers, you know that. That we need to be large when we need to be large and take charge that we can do that, that we can step forward and do that. When we need to step back and disappear, that we can do that. And that that doesn't make us weak. That when this love needs to be fierce, it is, because it's based on harmony, on seeing what is needed, not on myself, not what I like, what I want. I was reading a a story of um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, And she was, at at the time, you know, when she was alive, she was traveling a lot, teaching a lot. And one time she was at the airport and she was going back home. And she had had a very full uh, week of conferences and talks and speaking to families. She, it seems, it kind of seems from what I'm reading that maybe she specialized in working with families and children who uh, families of children and with the children themselves who had cancer, especially, as you know, she did a lot of work with the death and dying, with death and dying. And so she's um, at the airport and she's exhausted. She's ready to go home. And a woman approaches her and says, are you Dr. Ross? And she says she just closed her eyes for a moment. And all these things are going through her mind. She's thinking, I don't want to be Dr. Ross right now. I want to be Mary Smith. And I don't understand why Mary Smith doesn't want to be Mary Smith. I have signed 300 books. I have um, spoken to about 3,000 people. I don't want to be Dr. Ross right now. And she said, you know, one time she was at the airport, and she's going to the bathroom. She goes into the stall, and a hand comes in underneath with a book. Dr. Ross, do you mind? (laughs) So she says, you know, when you live my kind of life... You can't even go to the bathroom in peace. So there are times when you don't want to be me. You want to be someone else. And all of this, of course, goes through her face. And the woman sees it. And just, she's desperate. She just says, I just need to speak to you for five minutes. Um, Our son, our nine-year-old son, just died of cancer about a month ago. And just two weeks ago, we found out that our daughter is filled with cancer as well, our 11-year-old. And she said, we can't take it. We can't go to her room. We can't look at her. I mean, we resent her. And we're, we're, we don't know what to do. We're, besides our, uh, we're beside ourselves. We need help. 
And at that moment, she said she thought to herself, my God, if I just had one hour with this couple. She finishes saying that, and over the loudspeaker, there's an announcement that her flight has been delayed. And so she meets this couple. And she quite um, directly says, you know, when your life is in harmony, when she says all the quadrants of yourself, and I don't remember what they are, but just spiritual, physical, it's probably intellectual, and I don't remember what the other one is. When you're in harmony, things fall into place, and you find the energy. You find... um, you find the energy to step forward when you think you can't, when you can't bear the thought of meeting one more person. And she also says, you know, you don't have to be religious to feel this. You certainly don't have to be female or male. You just have to pay attention. You have to listen deeply and be willing to respond. You know, and sometimes we're not. And that's okay, too. I mean, even a bodhisattva has bad days. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up for it. But we should, I think, ask ourselves, what keeps me back? What holds me back? What stops me in this moment? Because usually it's not what we think. Usually it's not what we think. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's that uh, well-known chapter where Shariputra has a a dialogue with the goddess. And actually, first, what's happening is Manjushri speaks with um, Vimalakirti. And he's asking, you know, how should a bodhisattva regard all beings? In Manjushri, I mean, it's it's a long list, but he's basically saying like a reflection of the moon on the water, like a bubble, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble like the moment before a ball of foam, like an echo. Devoid of self, devoid of fixed nature. And Manjushri says, but if that's so, then how does a bodhisattva generate great love for all beings? And Vimalakirti says, you stop and consider. I have realized the Dharma. I should teach it. I should share it with all beings. And he says your bodhisattva generates love that is a refuge, that is peaceful because it's free of grasping, that is free of conflict, and it's firm. It's unbreakable. It's giving. It's spontaneous. It's without presumption. It's not artificial. It is happiness itself. And because I've been reading about the lives of these Christian mystics, it made me think of Meshtild of Magdeburg. Her relationship with, with God was so um, intimate. It was actually heretical. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was not just personal. I mean, it, it, was, it was incredibly intimate, the way she described it. And she told the church exactly what she thought about empty piety and rituals, and about money-making. So she wasn't very popular while she was alive, but she didn't care. And, you know, here we are, 800 years later, talking about her. 
And in her account of creation, for example, um, there's nothing in the beginning. And everything is locked into God, as it were. And it's really the Holy Spirit, which she equates with love, that decides that this can't be, that there's something that needs to be done. And so love proposes a plan to God to create, to express. And saying, you know, that only when we share and when we create can we actually bring into fruition that love and life, basically. And so God accepts the plan. He lets himself be wooed by love. And so life and love begins. And it's such a nice image of the creator of God as a lover rather than an engineer. Creating something not because there's just something that needs to be made, but out of that that irrepressible need to love, to express, and to express that love concretely. And then it got me thinking, in turn, what if our prime mover, in our Buddhist framework, what if the prime mover is not ignorance, but love? Because, as you know, in the 12-fold chain of interdependent origination, age and death comes after birth. And before birth is becoming. Before that, there's clinging. There's craving, feeling, contact. The six senses, name and form, consciousness, mental formations, and ignorance. And so ignorance is presented as the fundamental cause, the, the driving force behind existence. But what if this is not the full picture? What if knowingly we offend? In other words, what if a being going through this chain is caught by ignorance, yes, but also by a deep um, need to learn how to love? So if I didn't get it right this time, I will try again and again and again until I get it right until I become a full human being, express myself to the fullness of my capacity. So the driving force is not so much that ignorance, that delusion, but our need to learn once and for all how to get along with one another. Because we've achieved quite a bit in these millennia that we have been on this earth But not that, not yet, not really. Certainly not commensurate with our capacity to create. I mean, you would think, given our intelligence, we would know how to get along together better. And if that word, um, love, conjures up sappy images, reboot the hard drive. That's not what I mean. I'm not suggesting, you know, we sit in a circle and hold hands and say that all is love and light. Although I guess we sort of are sitting in a circle. (laughs) And actually, I am suggesting, I am suggesting all is love and light. But I wouldn't say this. 
I couldn't say it and mean it without the years, without the hours and hours of discipline that this life has put me in the midst of, that I have chosen through the long, hard work of returning over and over to this mind, heart. I guess what I'm saying is that we shouldn't be afraid to fully embody what the teachings point to. Hojan Osho used that word yesterday. And I've been thinking about that a lot myself because I've been so heady most of my life and feeling like I'm I'm ready (laughs) to move out of that now. It's good. You know, it got me certain places. And it's so limited. It's so limited. I mean, it's just a fraction of the whole being, for God's sakes, what took me so long. I am suggesting that whatever is abstract and distant, that we make concrete, that we bring it close, that whatever feels top-heavy, we make both grounded and light. I am saying that we stop complaining that Zen is so male, and we make it female. Because it is true that fundamentally there is no male or female, no soft or hard, no body or mind. They're not separate. And yet each one of us in this room has, through our karma, through a long chain of circumstances, been born in a female body. And it was not an accident. And it is certainly not a lack or a fault. And so Manjushri and Vimalakirti go through this whole dialogue and they talk about compassion and joy and equanimity and fear of life, fear of death. And hearing all this, a goddess who's been overhearing manifests in physical form. And she showers, she's so gladdened by the profundity of this teaching that she showers the bodhisattvas and all the sages who are present with flowers And Shariputra, who's there, thinks that this is not proper for the sages to be, to have flowers plastered all over them. And so he begins to shake them off. And the dialogue begins. And the goddess says, why? Why are you trying to take off these flowers? And he says, because it's not proper for a sage to be walking around with flowers. (laughs) And then he asks her, how long have you been in this house? And she says, you know, I've been here for a long time. And he, he's, he's really trying to get to who she is and what's, what's her worth, really. You know, how long have you been liberated, he says. What have you attained? What vehicle do you belong to? And she keeps saying, I haven't attained. I haven't realized. I've lived in this house for 12 years, and I've seen unfathomable things, incredible things. <clears throat> inconceivable things. And in a a little bit of a non sequitur, I think, he says to her, well, why don't you change out of your female form? Because, as you know, otherwise she wouldn't be enlightened. Traditionally, uh, uh, a woman couldn't be a perfectly enlightened Buddha. And so she's just described, which I I didn't do for you, but she's she's just described all the, the... Uh, powers and the inconceivability of the Dharma that she has seen and experienced 
But what he's asking him is, why don't you change out of your female form? And she says to him, well, I haven't found it. I've looked for it for 12 years, and I, and I haven't found it. And then she creates a kind of spell, and they trade places. And so he takes her body. So now Shariputra is the goddess, and the goddess is Shariputra. And he doesn't quite know what to do with this. <laughs> he doesn't know what to transform, because she says, okay, you know, so why don't you transform out of your female body? And he says, well... I was Shariputra just a moment ago. I, have, I don't know what to transform. And she says, exactly, exactly. You know, there is neither male or female. There is nothing to transform. So just as you are finding nothing to transform, those who are born in a female body too find nothing to transform, nothing to change. In other words, what's the problem here? And then they trade again. And she asks him, what have you done with your female form? And he says, I didn't do anything. Right. And then he asks, unbelievably, he asks, when will you attain enlightenment? (laughs) Really? (laughs) And she says, when you become ordinary. He's a sage, remember? So he says, I can't. And she says, exactly. Exactly. And finally, Vimalakirti just clinches this by saying, you know, she has served 92 million billion Buddhas. She has great power. She has completely succeeded in um, attaining her vows. And he says, she has actually attained irreversibility. She can live wherever she wishes on the strength of her vow to develop living beings. I read that as she can live in whatever form she has in order to free living beings and to be free herself. And, you know, saying there's no male or female isn't whitewashing because it could appear, and it's probably been used that way, actually. It probably has, but it's, it's, I, at least that's not how I intend it. It's the truth. And here we are, most definitely, in female form. Which, again, I see as having enormous power, actually. It's just that a good part of the time we're afraid to use it, I think. And what would it look like? If we were not afraid, would we stand up to popes like St. Clair, make God our lover like Meshtild, without guilt or shame, without apology at all? Would we be unapologetic, unequivocal, undaunted? What you hold may you always hold. What you do, may you always do and never abandon. But with swift pace, light step, unswerving feet, so that even your steps stir up no dust, may you go forward securely, joyfully and swiftly on the path of prudent happiness. With all due respect and honor to to St. Clair, let us go on the path of wild, unfettered, boundless, happiness.
on the path that lets us see that there is no male or female, no strong or weak, greater or lesser, so that we can be fully human. So we can love without distinction, without envy, without fear. I loved what Hojinosha said last night, something about uh, your desires, feeling your desires fully, uh, how, how much of our lives that has not been allowed. <clears throat> and somebody asked me at some point, well, how does that jive with desires are numberless? I vowed to put an end to them. You can't put an end to them, an end to them until you know you have them. To give ourselves full full permission to have them first before we can let them go. I also thought last night that, you know, as I, as I said, that, that feeling I had when I walked into these sacred places, I, that I felt it when I walked into this building the first time, and I felt it last night. I felt it last night when we started chanting Rengetsu's poem, um, this welling up, that it would be nice if it was not um, so rare, but was uh, a normal part of our existence, that this awe and this wonder is our life, because it is, in fact, but that we could touch that more often. This is uh, St. Catherine of Genoa. And, you know, her words could, with only very slight paraphrasing, um, they sound like Dongshan. So, so many, what I'm finding is um, the language often is so... Um, there, there is something happening. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, at heart we're all the same, right? So you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be male, female. There is something that we're reaching for, striving towards, moving towards. And so, of course, why wouldn't the language be so similar at times? I see without eyes, and I hear without ears. I feel without feeling and taste without tasting. I know neither form nor measure, for without seeing, I yet behold an operation so divine that the words I first used, perfection, purity, and the like, seem to me now mere lies in the presence of truth. Nor can I any longer say my soul, my all. Everything is mine. All that is truth seems to be wholly mine. I am mute and lost in this truth. Everything is mine. Actually, we could just say everything. And that would say it. And that is why we can hold what we hold and never abandon it. But we need to not forget that that is true.
For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.